Radio Mano Papachango. My name is Richard Salmon. I'm an ex-IT guy who gave up the game a couple of years ago after 25 years to become a bus driver in Sydney, Australia. Um, I've been playing your podcast on the bus stereo so that my passengers can have a listen and catch an idea or two or just have, have a think on the way to work. And um, last week a lady came up to me and said, that she wanted to know the title of the book that was being discussed, which was uh, The Vegetarian Myth, and that she'd been a vegan all her life and hadn't found the bravery to make a change that she'd been thinking of making, and that it was no longer for her, and so on. So she was very grateful. And I thought you needed to know that, man. Um, We've been doing the same thing, perhaps traveling down the road and meeting numerous strangers and not really knowing how to start the conversation um, until you start a conversation, that is, and then you find out you've got more in common than you first thought, eh? So, thanks for what you do, man. Um, there are more of us freaks out here than you think. Richard, Richard, Richard. Richard, first of all, what the hell are you doing playing my podcast on the bus. You're going to get your ass fired. And then I'm going to feel really badly about that. Unless buses are just very different in Australia than they are in the United States where people are getting fired for goddamn tweets that they sent out 10 years ago when they were 17 years old. Ah, the latest thing going on here is the Teen Vogue controversy. The editor of Teen Vogue has been caught up in the various cancel culture nonsense. And um, I was looking at Twitter last night, and there were all these things about this woman, and should she be fired or shouldn't she be fired? And what did she say? Her anti-Asian racist tweets were, you know, what they basically boiled down to was three tweets Um one of which said, outdone by an Asian, and then like hashtag, what else is new? I guess she was in college or maybe even high school. I don't know. She was 17. And uh, I guess she was having a hard time in a chemistry class. And the uh, TA was Asian. And the substance of the tweet was basically like, um, you know, I'm dumb. And this Asian teaching assistant is busting my balls. And uh, I guess, yeah, I, I guess it's, there's some kind of racist overtone just in the fact that you keep pointing out that she's Asian. Um, but there was nothing saying like, you know, Asians suck or I hate Asians or, you know, Asians should go back to asiatica there are just uh three tweets i spent some time looking around finding them because there are lots of articles saying 
oh, racist tweets, you know, land teen Vogue editor in hot water. Um, but it took some digging to actually find the tweets in question. By the way, the word tweet is the, one of the dumbest words in the English language. I, I hate I hate the world every time I have to say the word tweet. Because it doesn't sound like a word. It sounds like a sound. You know what I mean? Like uh, I used to do a whole class when I taught English in Spain where I was uh, pointing out to my Spanish students the brilliance of the English language where we have these words that sound like what they are. Um, in Spanish, you don't really have that, I don't think. I mean, I couldn't find them. Uh, you know, sneeze in Spanish is destornudar. Like, that doesn't sound like sneeze, sneeze, right? Cough, fart, uh, burp, you know? Like, these things all sound like what they're describing. And generally, I like those things. I think they... Uh, I like the sort of directness of the symbolism. Uh, but uh, in the case of tweet, I just feel like a silly twit every time I say the word. Anyway, um, what the hell was I talking about? Oh, yeah. So she said these things about Asians 10 years ago when she was 17, three of them. And so she got fired from her job at Teen Vogue. Um and after spending about half an hour rooting around and feeling indignant about this, it it occurred to me that this was Teen Vogue we're talking about. Teen Vogue. Like, who gives a shit, first of all? Uh, you know, the entire mission of magazines like Vogue is to make women feel badly about themselves. These fashion model, heavy, glossy magazines that sell bullshit skin creams and hair conditioners and I don't know, whatever else they sell that, um, you know, tell women how to be good in bed and how to be more beautiful and how to be better, 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 be better because you suck is basically the message of these magazines. And the fact that a special edition of this noxious propaganda exists for teen girls who don't have enough shit to deal with um you know with all the the body image issues and the eating disorders and the fear of adulthood and the fear of men and the fear of life itself which so many young women are facing justifiably understandably so now you're going to add to that the fear of other women and uh, the fear of all your inadequacies, which we are going to pound into your teen head month after month, edition after edition, issue after issue. Yeah, teen vogue. Fuck off, teen vogue. Um, anyway, that's the kind of thing that's going to get an Australian bus driver in trouble if played out over the speakers. So any passengers who are listening to this and are saying, Richard, what the hell are you doing, man? Please don't blame Richard. It's not his fault. It's totally my fault. I'm sorry. This episode 
is with a really uh, wonderful young woman. Speaking of young women, she's not a teen, but she's a young woman named Jenny Odell. Uh, she's an artist. Uh, she does all kinds of funky, interesting art. Um, and she's based in Oakland, as an artist should be. And she's a teacher, an educator, a writer. And the reason I had her on is she recently published a book called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Uh, and I love, I love that concept. I think it's time for this message. Uh, I think the world needs to do nothing. We need people who are unashamed of the fields within ourselves that lie fallow. And if you don't know what that means, look it up. It's a really good concept. Or don't look it up. I'll tell you. A field, a fallow field is where the farmer's not trying to get anything out of it. He just leaves it and lets the weeds grow and lets the, the wild things come in there and do their wild things. And uh, fields need this. The earth needs this. The earth needs randomness. It needs to be not cultivated. And we need time in our lives um, where we're not expecting fruit on the tree, where we're not expecting productivity, where we're just chilling out and letting things happen as they will. I remember when I was a young man, a very young man, when I made my fateful decision not to go to graduate school right after undergrad. I was in Alaska and I was reading an essay by Robert Frost, the poet, and uh, the essay is called The Figure a Poem Makes, I think. And he said, uh, like a piece of ice on a hot stove... A poem must ride its own melting. I love that image. It must ride its own melting. And there's something about that, about the randomness of the movement of the piece of ice on a hot stove, that it rides its own melting, that its own sort of disintegration uh, propels its movement. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to ride my own melting around the world. And I've been melting ever since. I'm not sure. That's very tangentially related to fields lying fallow. But you get my point. I'm right When a piece of ice rides its own melting, it's, it has no preconceived idea of where it wants to go and what it wants to do and what the object of all this is. In fact, there's no effort at all. It's just sit back and... Notice the currents, all the different currents that are sliding under your boat, pulling you this way and that. And in order to notice these things, you need silence, you need calm, and you need to feel liberated from expectation and requirement. So that's why I think Jenny O'Dell's book is important and her message is timely. And I hope you will enjoy this episode with her. A uh, little bit of housekeeping before we get into it. Um, international shipping is back on. 
Mom got her second vaccination and she feels okay about going to the post office once again. So those of you out in the greater world uh, who don't yet have your civilized to death t-shirts or hoodies or you want a signed copy of one of my books or you uh, um, want some stickers or some beer koozies or whatever it is that we've got in stock there, mom will send it to you once again. And by the way, uh, we were out of large, I think we're out of large and extra large shirts and hoodies of the Civilized to Death logo. Uh, Those are back in stock. So if you went to the website and you wanted to get an XL or an L hoodie or t-shirt and you didn't find it, you can find it now. So hope you will drop in at the store and give mom something to ship out to you. All right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, The only other thing I want to tell you about is that this episode is brought to you by uh, Mudwater. You've heard me talk about Mudwater before. Uh, This wonderful elixir that people are using all over the world to replace coffee. Gives you a little little kick in the ass, but without the jitters that you can get from straight-up caffeine. It's got all sorts of uh, interesting herbs and spices from around the world. And um, yeah, people, people dig it. Um, but anyway, Mudwater has a new media arm and they put our friend Kyle Tierman at the helm. And Kyle has uh, done a bunch of things. He started a podcast hosted and curated by him, which is a short form weekly radio show about 10 minutes long. So if you don't want to get into long podcasts, you can uh, just dip in and out with Kyle at the Trends with Benefits podcast. He's done episodes with people like Rick Doblin, the head of MAPS, uh, Jody Armour, who's a really fascinating dude who teaches about um, prison reform and uh, sort of structural racism. Uh, They've also got written stories about psychedelics, adventure, well-being, fascinating, world-famous writers like Tim Cahill and uh, this guy named Chris Ryan. They just published a story that I wrote. I've told this story on the podcast before. You've probably heard it. It's about when I first got to India on my first trip uh, to Asia. And I had saved up all this money and it was all $100 bills. And I managed to basically lose it in my first week in India. Um, So I wrote out that story and they've published that. And some people say it lands differently when you read it. So even if you've heard the story, if you liked it, you might want to drop in at trendswithbenefits.com and you can read it there. All right, that's it for the sponsorship. Now I just have to pause this and decide what song I'm going to use. You know, I don't. I, you might think I plan this all out beforehand, but I usually get to this point of the intro and then I pause it and I look at my music files and I pick something. So uh, I'll be right back with uh, something. I'm going to look for something that has something to do with nothing. All right, I'm back. Here's what I came up with. I don't even know what this song's about because I don't understand the language it's sung in, Um, but it's by Orchestra Baobab, who I've played before. They're from uh, Senegal, I believe. And uh, this song is 
something. I, I have a file of, of music. I'm like, oh, I'll play that on the podcast. And I make this file. And this song's in there. I, I think I played Son de Yama, I think is the name of the song that I've played before, Sol de Yama. Um, sometimes they sing in Spanish, um, but I think this one is sung in uh, some local language. Not French, I don't think, but it's a tribal language from Senegal. Anyway, uh, I have no idea what this song is about, um, but I love the relaxed nostalgic vibe of it sometimes not i mean i listen to lyrics as you know i i am kind of obsessive about lyrics so if i can understand the language i i can't help but focus on the lyrics um, but sometimes it's really relaxing to listen to people singing and have no idea what they're saying um, and just kind of get off on the groove and the tone and the kind of uh, pre-verbal emotional communication. So this song is called Mohamedou Bamba. Two words, Mohamedou and then Bamba. And it's by Orchestra Baobab. And I hope you agree with me that it is an appropriate tune for an episode about the importance of not working. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Jenny O'Dell following Mohamedou Bamba by Orchestra Baobab. Thank you.
Yes, I'm here with Jenny O'Dell. Uh, Jenny, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. I um, I came across your your book. I I have to be honest; I've only read a little bit of it, um, and a and there's a congruent reason for that, which is that. I mean, the reason I I really like the idea, and the reason I've only read a bit of it is that I'm lazy, and. Uh, <laughs> So the idea of doing the value of doing nothing speaks to me so clearly. Um, I don't know if I don't know what you know about what I do, but I've studied hunter gatherers for a long time and I'm very suspicious of the American work ethic and ambition and getting ahead and getting more, you know, social media followers and money and fame and all that stuff just strikes me as bullshit from the get go. So when I saw that you'd written a book about the value of 
fallow time, I thought, oh, yeah, this is a book I'm definitely going to read later. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, so can you tell me the story? How does how does a book about not I mean, I, I'm guessing what the book's about. Maybe I'll open it up and it'll all be about working hard at, at meditation or something. <laughs> but how do you, how, how does a book like this come to be? Um, so it has a pretty specific origin story, which is that basically after the 2016 election, which also around that time, I live in Oakland, um, there was a catastrophic warehouse fire uh, that a lot of people died in, um, and some of them were friends of friends. So essentially it was like this kind of traumatic time um, for me and just a lot of people I know who, who especially are artists and writers, because my background is in art. Um, and there was this kind of collective feeling of like paralysis and not knowing what to do like what is it worth making anything does any of my work have meaning um and just this kind of shock and so i found myself sort of intuitively going to this rose garden that i live about five minutes away from it's like a municipal rose garden in the middle of oakland and just sitting there and not doing anything um and then starting to become sort of curious about why i was doing that and why that felt necessary and then at that time, I happened to be asked to give a talk the following summer at a conference that tends to have also a lot of artists at it, um, who I thought maybe uh, artists who are very online, I should say. Mm. Um, and so I, I, you know, I had to submit a talk title. I was given a blank slate. You know, I could talk about whatever I wanted, and I just kind of looked at the circumstances that I was in, and I submitted the talk title: "How to Do Nothing," without any talk actually <laughs> existing yet um and then i i spent the next couple months uh thinking more about like what the difference was between how i felt in that space of that park versus how i felt the whole rest of the day especially um you know not only interfacing with the news but just like social media hysteria emotional reaction um and just kind of not being able to find any like emptiness um, or just kind of space to like think and process. So really the whole talk is just an argument for the need for um, spaces and times for reflection and listening and receptivity versus like knee-jerk reaction, production, um, things that we consider productive uh, in the traditional sort of Western American sense. Um, and I gave that talk in the summer of 2017 and then actually an author, Adam Greenfield, who had been at that talk, emailed me out of the blue and said, you know, I think this could be a book. Mm -hmm. Have you ever considered that? Which I had not. Um, and uh, I had put the transcript of the talk online and it kind of spread around a lot more than I expected because it's really long. It's a 45 minute talk. Um, but he really helped me so much and just kind of, you know, this is what this is what the process looks like. And um, I just I had a lot of help from people um, given that my, again, my background is in art, I didn't have an agent or anything like that. So really the book has just been such, uh, everything about it has been surprising to me. <laughs> like the fact that it, that I, you know, that it got done, um, and how it came into existence, but even more so like that it would be relatable and resonant to, to anyone outside of that really specific community mm. <laughs> or my own head, uh, is, is 
still surprising to me to this day. So it's surprising to you, but you must have some explanation for why it's hit a nerve. Do you have you thought that through? Yeah, I I have my theories and I I think I heard from a lot of readers things like I'd been having these kinds of thoughts for a long time, but you you gave them a name or things like that. You, you put your finger on something. So I heard so many different versions of that. And I I like to think that the reason it caught on was that, you know, like readers, readers aren't stupid. Um, I really believe like people aren't stupid. Um, and this kind of like literature of the like the quick fix, the, the dumbed down version of a problem um, it may look like that sells well, but I don't think that's what people really want. Um, and I, I really struggled, um, and I'm, I'm having the struggle again right now because I'm writing another book. I really struggled to try to stay true to the complexity of the problem mm. and not say, not just say like, oh, you need to put your phone away and pretend like these problems of attention aren't linked to like much wider systems, right? Um, and I really, I, I tried not to shy away from that. And and I, and I think like that is just closer to the truth of like, you know, how these problems are interconnected. And I think that that just felt like a relief for some people to just hear someone make that connection, right? Like, um, you know, the, the fact that the whole first half of the book is basically about technology um, but then the second half is about ecology and like kind of trying to draw these parallels between um, the ecology of an ecosystem and the ecology of like thought and speech as it plays out on Twitter and, you know, using metaphors of like erosion mm. and uh, not having any ground cover, you know, uh, just trying to put these different domains like in conversation with each other. like. Some people definitely got frustrated with that. I think they were they wanted the quick fix book, and it has how to in the title, and I feel a little bit bad. But I think there there are just as many people who were pleasantly surprised by the how much is encompassed in this kind of compost pile. <laughs> a compost pile. It's a nice way to describe a book. Uh, it is. I mean, it's it's a, a place where you know your production goes, and you hope that it inter interacts in a way that uh, creates fertility, right, for things to grow out of. Um, yeah. It's how did you find the process of writing a book as someone who's done? You know, I know you've done a lot of conceptual art. I was looking at your webpage earlier. Some really interesting. Um, conceptual approaches to things uh, like tracing the power from Yosemite to particular buildings or, or I guess neighborhoods in San Francisco and um, reenacting Google Street View photos or, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have you uh, have you ever heard? It's totally an aside, but have you ever heard of the Museum of Jurassic Technology? Yes, I have. Been oh, there. good. Okay, I loved it. I never wanted yeah. to. Yeah, it, it started when <laughs> yeah. I was looking at your webpage. I thought she's got to check this place out. If she's never been there, this is a good place. All right. Well, I'm glad you. Yeah. I love that place. It's in L.A. For anyone that listening. Was... Yeah, it's totally well. When we can visit places like that again, very much recommend. And it's also one of those things where you know when some 
enough people recommend something to you enough that you almost get annoyed and you don't want to right. do it or watch right. it. That's what happened with that. Everyone, every person who looked at my work was like, <laughs> or friends were just like, oh, you know, Museum of Jurassic Technology, it's so cool. And like, I just was like, okay. And then I finally went and I felt so <laughs> yeah for not having gone sooner. Uh, I had that experience but, um, with Pink Floyd, the band. I was... Yeah. I was pumping gas. I worked in a gas station when I was in high school. And this guy I worked with, who, you know, we knew each other kind of. And at some point he was like, dude, you should check out a band named Pink Floyd. I think you'd really like them. And the only song I'd ever heard by Pink Floyd was the song Money that starts with the cash register. Right. Mm-hmm. And I hated it. I, ha- I hated the the sound <laughs> of the cash register and the down, 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 and the bells and all that. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that band sucks. And I, I wasn't even smart enough to listen to the words to realize that money was a song about what a bunch of bullshit money is. So I didn't even get the subversive yeah. quality of it. And for years, I thought Pink Floyd yeah. sucked. And then I was in college. And I think I had, like I was probably tripping on mushrooms or something. And somebody put on Dark Side of the Moon. And I was like, <laughs> this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> what an idiot I am. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, you had to find your way. <laughs> I guess, but so that poor guy was just trying to save me some trouble. You know, I yeah. could have been yeah. digging yeah. Pink Floyd for years. Um, oh, I wanted to ask you, like, how how did you feel? How was writing a book? What was that process like for you, as someone who's worked in other mediums? Or, or um, you know, it's surprisingly similar, only because. Um, and you, you could probably get a sense of this from, you know, the projects on my website. My artistic practice was always really research-based. Mm. So right. I actually, and I, I majored in English for undergrad. Um, and I, I, in retrospect, I think that maybe, you know, when I went to grad school after that, I, I was modeling my process of making on like writing a research paper because uh, that's actually what I was trained to do. Right. Um, and I am a, a, I don't know how to describe it. My curiosity is sometimes a problem for me. Um, actually, it's quite often a problem for me in terms of like work and burnout. Um, like I, again, I'm having that issue right now with this book where it's like, I am just a very curious person and um, and I will very easily go down various rabbit holes and lose track of time um, and forget why I even asked the question in the first place. Like that's just kind of the way that my brain works. So, um, both in the art projects that I made and the writing, um, there's this process of like, just kind of going out there, you know, out there could mean, uh, a bunch of academic journals or the library or, or Google maps, like in the case of some of the art that I've made, um, or when I was an artist in residence at the dump, it was like going into the dump. Right. But the, the thing that these have in common is like going into some sort of space that has some kind of material, um, in it or information and then digging through that. And that's always the point where I almost get stuck because I like that part so much more than any of the rest of it. So I could just get stuck, for example, right now with just like learning more and more and more about the thing that I'm trying to write this chapter about. But like at some point I need to write the chapter and decide like what's going to be in it. So, um, but I used to have that same problem with with art where I would make these collages of things cut out from Google maps. And it's like, I could just spend all day on Google maps and never actually get to the point where I make anything. So there's always in all of my work, there's that tension between, um, finding and making 
like I like finding almost more than making <laughs> and making is maybe an excuse just to do the finding but um I, I do try to in both cases try, I try to communicate my enthusiasm to the viewer slash reader and kind of like it's like I want you to be at the dump with me like digging through the trash like in your encounter with the project somehow right and 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 communicating that enthusiasm can be problematic if you aren't sensitive to them um i mean i'm talking about my own creative process here so maybe i'm projecting something onto you but you know th there's a period when i'm working on a book where i'm really excited about the ideas and I'm doing the thing you're doing where I'm just researching and researching and I just want to know everything there is to know about this, uh, partly because of just pure curiosity and the, the joy of learning and partly uh, terror of being wrong and publishing a book and having someone yeah, go, but absolutely. are you not aware of this entire line of research? Yeah. Um, but I've had a problem in my last book. Uh, where I feel like I went too far and I it was almost like I was trying to surf a wave and I let the wave go past me and then I had to swim into the beach, you know, rather than ride the wave um, because I spent so long working on it that that the the real fun and the and the, the sort of sense of discovery had grown stale by the time I finished it. You know what I'm talking about? Is, is yeah. that a danger for you in the in the the research phase, or do you know when to switch into the building phase? I I don't know that that I I have only ever had the problem of being of getting stuck in the curiosity side of things. Um, maybe because it's maybe because I tend to just start asking related questions. Hmm. You know what I mean? So it's just like always like spreading out and that's how it can get very far off topic. But um, I I also, have, I'm being reminded now going through the process again that I kind of go back and forth. Um, so I do a lot of research and then I start, I start writing, but then it becomes clear through the process of writing that there's other stuff that I need to get. And so I'm just kind of constantly going back and forth. Hmm. And again, it like it quite honestly reminds me of making those collages because what I used to do was cut out, say, you know, 50 swimming pools from Google Earth and I would put them together. And then once I saw how that looked, I would know what kinds of other swimming pools, how many other kinds, you know, I needed and I would go back. So it's like I can't I, I also find writing to be like a, a, a process of conversation with myself. So I'm like figuring stuff out as I'm writing so I won't know what I need until I kind of get started. Right. Um, so it's, it's also like, that's, that's another reason I tend to, to get stuck. Cause it's like, I, sometimes the process of writing is me figuring out how actually, how little I know and how like narrow my perspective is. And then I'm like, Oh God, like I need to do an entire like lifetime's worth of <laughs> learning about you know some subjects yeah yeah there's always the, the you're always confronting imposter syndrome when you're writing right um i was i was talking to a guy named john colopinto the other day who's an author and a new yorker staff writer and he pointed out that you know the word authority and author come from the same root so when you're authoring a book you are presenting yourself as an authority so you know you, 
you better be, <laughs> you know, or it looks pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, but, and the thing is like, I really, I don't, I don't enjoy that. Mm. Like part of it, like the idea of the authority, because, and I talk about this and how to do nothing. All of my favorite art is very ego effacing. So like, you know, conceptual art from the sixties and seventies, like, you know, 433, which is just, you know, basically silence. Right. Um, a lot of fluxus art, you know, these pieces where it was almost like all audience participation. Mm. So like, yes, the artist did set something in motion, but it wasn't like, right. It wasn't like Jackson Pollock making something, you know, on uh, expressing himself on a, a blank canvas. Um, and I've, I have always really enjoyed that kind of gentler kind of art. That's more of like a framing device mm. for what's already there. Mm. And I have, I strive to, to do that. So I really have mo even more problems than I would have with the idea of being an authority and like the way that I've sort of figured out to get around that inevitability is to kind of f frame the, the information that I have found almost like in a story of like how, how I learned it. So, and it's in, it's in how to do nothing. It's also definitely going to be in this book where it's like, like, here's where I started. Um, and here's where you're starting maybe. Um, hmm. and like, I'm going to end up somewhere very, very different. And like, this is how I got there. Um, right. because I, I really, I really, um, it's really important to me to not alienate readers also. Um, and so like, making a thoughtful trail that's like easy to walk mm. even if the things that you're looking at along the way are somewhat challenging or unfamiliar um because and I, I think some of that comes from like you know this is my seventh year teaching college students um and teaching art to non-art majors um i'm very sensitive to things like um the feeling that someone might have for example, who doesn't read academic texts, but is really interested in theory mm. um, and could use these tools that it could really help them understand things in their life. Um, but but they're usually presented in this sort of like intimidating or inaccessible way. And, um, and so I really try to uh, kind of split the difference. Like I don't want to dumb it down, but I also want it to be accessible. Right. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Um, what, what's the what's the the process of you? Why did you study English? I guess is my question. Were were you intending to write or teach literature when you were an undergrad, or did you just like reading books? Or because I also have a, my my BA is also in in English. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I, uh, I it definitely was not a pragmatic decision. Um, I. I think I majored in English because I had written almost every day since I was a child. Um, and I have a really actually sort of troubling number of journals at my parents' house. <laughs> no one should have this much data about their lives. Um, and, and I would write a lot, like just notebooks and notebooks. And you know, it's not good. It's just, that's, that was just what I did. Um, and I still do it. Um, and so I think maybe part of it was like, well, this is what I already do. Hmm. So it almost like wasn't even a decision. And I really loved reading. Um, and I loved, um, I think I, I really enjoy 
like sort of pattern recognition. Like I like, um, you know, as I've said already, kind of like drawing things into a new relationship. And, and I, and so I really enjoyed that part of the English major, right? It's like, read this book, try to read between the lines of this book, or like you have a thesis about this writing, you're going to read it against the grain. Um, I always really, really liked doing that. Um, and I liked the idea that it could help you read other things that aren't books, right? Like have a mm. reading of something. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And I still, um, I, I still do that. Like right now, my, uh, my boyfriend is really into movies. And so we've been watching like a different movie almost every night and we've really enjoyed like doing basically that process. Mm. Like. Um, and he's also trying to write a script right now. So it's like just even looking at how the movie is constructed and then like noticing little details that the director did, you know, like it's very similar to what they teach you to do in an English major. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's probably why, um, but I wasn't thinking about a job. That's so crazy to think <laughs> now, like my students are all have like internships and personal websites. Um, yeah, I just, it was very self-indulgent, but it ended up being useful. So, you know, here's the self-indulgence. Um, who were you writing to? Cause I did that too. I, I had journals and I was writing to my future self. Who were you writing to? I think that in some cases I was definitely writing to a future self, but, but more often I think I was just writing to an imagined other person because I'm an only child mm -hmm. and my family is very small. Like I will, I should say we're spread out. So it's like really, it was me, my mom and my dad, and we lived in a pretty alienating suburb. So, uh, there was a lot of me sort of wandering around bored and alone. <laughs> um, and so I, I think, you know, like everybody talks to themselves right in their head. It's just that mine was on paper. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know if it's because something, I find that I still have to do it by hand. Um, like that kind of writing. Mm. And I, and so I, I somewhat suspect that it has to do with like slowing down my thought process and being able to see it because if I can't do that, it just kind of like, it's like a truck that's like spinning out. It doesn't, it's going, but it's not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like burning itself out. So it's kind of like, I, I think of it as like a, a thinking prosthesis or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. I, I get that. Uh, what movies have you been watching recently? Any, any, cause I love movies too. Any that really struck you? <sighs> Are you watching classics? Okay, so there's one, uh, it's all over the place. Uh, it's some like indie films and then some, sometimes we watch like really just like basic movies just to kind of like look at how they're structured. Mm. Um, some foreign stuff. There's one that I almost hesitate to recommend because we watched it and we were both just kind of like messed up for a couple days after this movie. It was, and I think about it all the time. I'm probably gonna talk about it in the book. Um, I believe it was Swedish, but it's called Aniara. Uh, and it's a sci-fi uh, film based on a poem, I believe from the fifties or something like this. Um, and I, I will, I'll just say what the premise is. It's that, uh, sh it's in the future and a sh there's a commuter ship going to Mars because presumably we've ruined earth and the, the ship gets knocked off course. And the whole film is about the ship going off course. 
but the it is like the most devastating depiction of nihilism I have ever encountered. Mm. I mean, it was like like we both afterwards were like, maybe we shouldn't have watched this during the pandemic, especially because it's like the ship in the in the film was kind of like a cruise ship, so everyone's stuck in their little rooms, you know, and this kind of overarching question of like are we going to ever get anywhere? Is there a point to anything? Like, what even is the future? What does the present mean if there is no future? You know, it's just like, yeah, it was super well done, like impeccably done, mm. but really quite difficult to like sit with afterward. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds good. I, I just watched Nomadland the other night. Have you seen that? Oh, we're watching that tonight. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> then I, I won't say much about it, other than the fact that I spend about four months every year living in my van. So it was really interesting to see the sort of uh, the depiction of that type of life um, in the film. The, a lot of the film, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of the people who appear in the film are, are real people who are in this community of... Uh, nomads um there's oh, kind of yeah. you know there's yeah. there's um i forget the name of the actress the the lead role you know she's obviously an actress but a lot of the other people you'll you'll notice the texture of the film they're they're yeah. actual people they're not actors yeah um yeah so i was thinking uh when you were speaking earlier about uh well lots of things one thing was the uh i don't know if you've ever read a book I, I hate to do this because I don't know how, how interesting it is for listeners, but when I'm talking with someone who likes reading, I just want to start throwing books at you and, you know, <laughs> did you, did you read this? Did you like that? But there's a book uh, in particular called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. Have you heard of this? I have heard of it and I've had a friend send me like a section of it. So it's been on my list for a really long time. Uh, it, I, the reason I, I thought of it was partly your, when you said earlier that you use a lot of ecological um, imagery or metaphor in talking about time and attention and, um, you know, uh, erosion and lying fallow and things like that. That book is very much a, a book about, it, partly it's a book about nature, but it's also a book about silence and quiet and and contemplation uh, and and sort of seeing nature as a reflection of the inner self, you know, and, and the necessity for, for quiet in order to really observe what's happening. Um, fantastic book, really, really interesting. And also a book that I believe was written by accident. Uh, she didn't intend to write a book. She just found herself. She married her professor in college, I think, and then moved to this country house. And he was going off and teaching all day. And she was just sort of hanging out in this house in, in Virginia, I think, and just started noticing things and then wrote things down. And next thing you know, it sort of congealed into a book that was um published by pure chance and became a, a runaway hit by word of mouth. It wasn't, you know, it was a small publisher and I, I love those sorts of stories. And it sounds like your book is, yeah. is similar in some ways. Yeah, definitely. Did you move on? Well, first of all, are you comfortable? Do you want to talk about the book you're working on now? Or would you prefer just to not let any air out of that balloon? How do you feel about that? No, no, I, 
I'm happy to talk about it. Okay. So what, yeah. what's this book about? Uh, so this book is more specifically about time. Uh, it's about different ways of seeing time. So I kind of think of it as like a s series of lenses through which you can look and, and time appears very differently. Um, a really big kind of objective that I have is to take the way time appears in the everyday, of course, not, you know, uniformly and not all the time every day, but the, the kind of like idea of the kind of time that, that people talk about with time management. I'll just say that, right? Like fungible units of time. Uh, and the idea of time is money. Um, I really want to give enough historical context about how that came to be and then also talk enough about other reckonings of time um, that by the end, this way that you sort of familiarly conceive of time feels very alien and it makes it possible for you to imagine something else or maybe easier to imagine something else. Um, and, and it kind of came out of, it, it follows logically from How to Do Nothing because one of the big critiques of How to Do Nothing um, was and is um, that it doesn't matter to someone who doesn't have time hmm. to do any of these things. Um, and that really, and not just that, right? It's like, even if you do have time, um, not everyone experiences free time in the same way. Like I just read this amazing essay last night called Walking While Black that I cannot recommend more highly. Uh, it's just like an amazing essay on LitHub. But it's about like, you know, uh, this idea of safety and like being and the flaneur, right? And be, being able to go for a walk, that that's not an experience that's accessible to a lot of people, um, especially in the US. So, uh, so it's kind of like my, you know, these are, these are things that I don't feel like I adequately addressed or was even aware of when I wrote How to Do Nothing. And, um, and so I'm trying to kind of think more seriously about this question of like, if it, if it's true that like what I, what I want is for everyone to have a portion of their life that does not feel like it's part of the hamster wheel, um, and that they can conceive of themselves outside of work and that not all time has to be money. Like what would that actually take? And like, really just kind of go down that path, which I am struggling down right now. Um, and even just kind of looking at the history of leisure, like the way leisure has been talked about. Um, yeah, so that's, and there's definitely going to be some ecological stuff in there. You know, that's, that's one way of looking at time. Um, maybe some geological time. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's <laughs> time is such a broad, you know, topic and it's, and it's connected to everything. And then, and then I'm also realizing that, you know, this artificial division of time from space is like also itself like a completely Western thing. So it's a little bit arbitrary. Um, but we also live in a, in a world with time right now. I mean, like just practically speaking, there are hours in a day that you have to attend to. Yeah. Yeah. Ever, ever smaller units of time that are under consideration too, right? It's like agricultural time is very different from industrial time. Um, not only in the rigidity of industrial time, but also in the, uh, the subdivisions, right? Agricultural time is, days and seasons, you know, um, I'll tell you an interesting essay that might be 
informative for you is called The Original Affluent Society. It was written by Nancy. Oh, do you know that? Yeah. I, I, I do. Let me get my pen. Um, I haven't read it, but I'm, I am aware of it. Well, it's, it's interesting, and it might be informative for you because Marshall Salins, the anthropologist who wrote it, was essentially making an, an economic argument that, you know, we look at hunter-gatherer people as impoverished. Um, because they don't have a lot of material possessions, which is how we measure wealth, right? Um, but if you look at it from another perspective, you find that their diet uh, typically is actually extremely rich, much more nutritious than the modern diet, even among affluent people. Um, their Their sort of happiness, their sense of community, their sense of meaning in life, you know, all these things that are actually much more important and, and ultimately uh, more accurate uh, matrices of quality of life. They're very rich, um, and that there's a great deal of wealth in feeling that you don't that you're not lacking anything. It does. It's not really about how much you have. It's how much you lack, right? And um, he also talks about time and and one of the revolutionary findings. Uh, of that that he presented in that paper was that hunter gatherers work and I'm doing air quotes uh, around 12 to 14 hours a week and depending some up to 20 hours a week right and that provides everything they need that's the food the shelter hunting cooking childcare etc but and then he breaks it down further and says but most of these forms of work that we're talking about are things that we do in our leisure time hunting, fishing, telling stories, playing with children, you know, childcare, things that we consider to be work that they, or, or that we consider to be play that, you know, we're counting as work because they're necessary activities. So in terms of time, hunter gatherers have massive amounts of free time, far more than, than the average, uh, you know, modern person. Um, you know, there's a, a story, an anecdote I told in Civilized to Death about uh, a filmmaker who went to Papua New Guinea and lived with hunter-gatherer people there and then ended up inviting them to London and they spent a few weeks in England. And there was this moment in the morning where they were sitting around the table and the producer whose house they were at had to, like, he was like, okay, got to go to work. And, and the hunter-gatherer guy said, like, where do you go all day? And he said, well, work, and I have to work. And they, okay, why? You're away from your family, and you know you're, you leave, and it's still dark, and you come home, it's dark. Where are you in the day? And he explained the need for money and all that and, and to pay for the house. And they said, oh, how many days do you have to work to pay for the house? And he said, 30 years. And they were like... <laughs> When we when we want a house, we get together, we build a house in a couple of days, like you're 30 yeah. years anyway. So this is just my lens on yeah. things. But this whole like, totally. you know, what is the innate human um, relationship with time? You know, it, we're living in machine yeah. time. It's totally different. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there is, you know, of course, like we are mortal. So there's always going to be like time scarcity, like some sense of time scarcity is arguably sort of unavoidable. Although you could say like, you know, mindfulness kind of 
Buddhism or or you know, or, might, or, or believing in reincarnation or life after right, death. Right, all these other, you yeah. know, all that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, But but I do think it's like you know it's important to acknowledge that like that there is for a lot of people like a very basic sense of the clock running down just because that's you know <laughs> how life is. But um, one thing that's been really interesting for me to learn about that I just had no I had no clue was how recent and how contested the idea of wage labor was in the US. Like, you know, I'm reading this book right now about uh, about that kind of struggle, like this transitional moment in the 19th century where it was like, people used to talk about working for wages as like, like, uh, you know, shameful, like humiliating, like renting yourself out. Mm. Um, and then gradually there was this kind of shift more towards like fighting for like a living wage. Like, so you take the wage for granted and now you're fighting for a living wage, which is now, you know, pretty much where we're at. Um, and then there's, uh, I'm also in the middle of, I actually have it right here, this um, book, which I also highly recommend, The Problem with Work mm. uh, by Kathy Weeks, who also talks about the wage thing. But her, the inter- you could just read like even the introduction of this book, like it'll just totally like stand everything on its head. Like she's kind of like, you know, okay, there's all this, you know, activism around like the living wage and things like this, but like, why doesn't anyone question <laughs> the idea of work? And why doesn't anyone question um, the fact that work is so anti-democratic, but it's like where we spend all of our time. Like the, our whole, this whole sphere of our lives, right? Like if you work for someone else, um, especially if you work for a wage or even if you work for a salary, it's like, you have to abide by those rules or you are gone. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know, maybe I, like that's naive of me because I, you know, in my teaching job, I've been so unsupervised and I'm so, I work by myself and I barely ever, ever even see other adjuncts, but you know, I've worked in other places and I like think about it now and I'm like, that is odd mm. <laughs> you know and it's just so taken for granted you now you just you're born into a world where everybody that's what you do you work for a wage find someone to work for and it's like i've always found it really strange yeah. when someone talks about their boss like I, I, yeah. I don't know why they don't feel embarrassed to say that word you know what i mean it's like yeah. it's like my owner or something you know my yeah. superior like what are you talking about it it really throws into stark contrast what you're talking about that that deeply hierarchical reality that's taken for granted yeah and and that that this is something that you need to do for your whole life until the point that you can't anymore at which point you are of less sort of value to society um like there's a really interesting part of um the problem with work where she talks about ubi as like, you know, on the one hand, it's like a proposal for an actual thing. But on the other hand, she sort of considers it like a something that gestures in a sort of utopian direction of like thinking about how we might value people in other ways than simply what they produce, because obviously that has implications for, you know, disabled people, elderly people, you know, people who don't work for whatever reason work right like work that's recognized as work right um and to some extent children although you can say that like children are being sort of invested in to become future workers <laughs> but um but it's interesting that she talks about it that way where it's like it could be this sort of 
tool for thinking about a different system of value for people in a community. Well, and I don't know if she mentions Salins, but or any research into hunter gatherers, but UBI is very much uh, a reflection of a hunter gatherer society, where uh, egalitarianism is the the sort of central organizing principle, and food is shared no matter who who's the best hunter no matter who's strongest or you know most attractive or funniest or whatever qualities um the sort of uh, equitable sharing of resources is um sort of the one and uh, you the one thing you can never um uh the one line you can't cross if you're caught hoarding food or keeping resources away from the collective that's uh that's the worst thing you can do in a hunter-gatherer society so this idea of like okay you're not working doesn't matter we have enough everyone's welcome everyone gets their share is very much i would argue a deeply human um impulse which is why inequitable distribution of resources is so painful for us and not just for the people at the bottom for the people at the top it's really hard to be wealthy in a brutal society yeah anyway yeah, it's alienating i'm, I'm ranting sorry <laughs> i'm i'm host explaining <laughs> i tend to do that sometimes you know i was thinking how your book is um, and, and, you know, maybe I'm I'm seeing patterns where there aren't any, but it, it seems to me that there's been in recent years uh, sort of a genre of books that go against this accelerating impulse toward efficiency and towing the line and getting rich and, you know, just accumulation Um like I'm thinking of a guy named Mark Manson wrote a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Uh, I had him on the podcast, and I actually it, it was kind of painful when that book came out and and has done so well because I had thought about writing a book like that. I even when I was invited to give a TED talk, I was like, maybe I should talk about the importance of not taking this shit seriously. You know, like what a <laughs> you know. Um, Anyway, I didn't. I talked about prehistoric sex instead. But, uh, you know, do, do you see your book as part of a, a like a, a response to this increasing pressure? Or do you think that there's um, maybe there's a ready audience for this sort of message due to the fact that young millennials and people younger than millennials are coming into this? situation and saying the american dream uh that's not even actually available anymore like i'm you know what i mean we're we're struggling just to survive and pay the rent we're we're not worried about accumulating wealth like that's that's inaccessible so we need to find other ways um toward happiness and fulfillment yeah yeah i mean i i don't think i saw it when I started writing it, um, I was so, it was just kind of me in my corner. <laughs> I mean, I wrote it in my, my art studio, um, in downtown Oakland. Um, and 
I hadn't sort of yet connected it to these other, um, like very similar thought processes that were going on. Um, in retrospect, I mean, I think it's definitely part of, uh, yeah, like sort of general reaction to this like dehumanizing experience of, um, being like measured and observed all the time, um, and being sort of called to account for your time, uh, and not having anything for yourself. I mean, I, the book is dedicated to my students, um, who, you know, I teach at Stanford. So a lot of them are subject to this like optimization culture and are, they're just tired. <laughs> so, mm. uh, I think that I was tapping into that a little bit, just, you know, having experienced it myself, but also just being kind of seeing that over and over again. Um, but I don't know, it's interesting because, you know, just to go back to the stuff that I've been reading, like one thing that I've been really fascinated by, I don't even know if, I don't know if it's like inspiring or depressing, but to just actually like read about how long it took to get the eight hour workday, <laughs> like how, it's so long. Like I'm like this, I'm reading this book that's only about that. Mm. And it's a, well, I don't know how big it is because I'm reading it online, but you know, it's a long book and it's just like, it's, it's actually quite stultifying because every chapter is like, you know, in 1863, there was in this town, there was an eight hour move or 10 hour, eight hour movement. And then in 1864, in this town, there was a eight hour picnic and 6,000 people came and like, and it's just like over and over. And you know, like, you know, in your head, like, this is a long movie, right? Like it ends in like the 20th century. And it's, I, I've been thinking about it a lot because it's like, you basically have this record of like a collective a significant collective impulse for the workday to be shortened. That was like, in some places, like kind of common knowledge, it sounds like, like it was just a thing that was like top of mind and it still took that long. And so I'm like, one part of me is depressed that it took that long. And then another part of me is inspired that, that, that just kept going until it was a reality. Um, although you can also say, you know, there's a whole complication with that because it's like the eight hour, Workday was also like in part to get people to consume more. Mm. Uh, so, you know, but basically like, I just thinking about like these, this feeling, feelings that are like sort of s commonplace or like kind of like simmering under the surface that you can probably like talk to, you know, a few people and someone is going to voice something about it. Right. Like these truisms, like, oh, social media is terrible. Right. It's like, it's very common to hear that. And yet like have any social media tech companies been regulated meaningfully? No. <laughs> uh, and it's like, I'm a little bit pessimistic about it. So it's like this strange uh, dissonance, right? Between it's like what I think a lot of people feel and what a lot of people want. I mean, just this morning, I was like walking around thinking about how, you know, I, I, I sort of hate Twitter, but then there's also these amazing scholars on Twitter and people doing research um, and, and who are parts of communities that I don't, I wouldn't know about otherwise. And their work is amazing. And, and they're also clearly like using Twitter to talk to, you know, to share their work, to talk to each other, to have conversations. And like, that's really meaningful. And I was just like, so frustrated that we didn't have some, you know, alternative that caught on. Right. I mean, there are alternatives. They just haven't really caught on in a, in a widespread way, like Mastodon or things alternative like that. social media platforms. Social media, yeah, yeah. And how? What kind of alternative would be superior? Like, like a uh, basically a not not for profit, <laughs> like a non non commercial. Like, 
uh, something that that my boyfriend and I have been talking about a lot during on our like pandemic walks is like um, this idea that, and this probably depends on like how you use social media and like what your feed looks like, but um, as a platform, like a, things like Twitter and Instagram, it's it's a little bit gamified, right? Like there's a way to, that you're supposed to play it. You don't have to play that way, but there's a way that you're supposed to. And there is a sort of stated objective of like, you're supposed to get engagement, like retweets, comments, likes, things like this. Um, you're supposed to gain followers. Um, again, no, you don't have to do those things, but it is strongly suggested by the platform that you do those things. And then that has all kinds of effects on the way people talk and the kinds of statements they make and the way information, you know, circulates and the uh, emotional register of things. And I was telling him about how I was like, I was doing all these desperate things to try to get Twitter to be like what I wanted it to be. Like, I was like, oh, I found this Chrome plugin that makes trending topics go away. And which is amazing. And then I was like, and then I have this really carefully curated list. And then, then I resorted to using an RSS reader and putting like pe people's Twitter accounts in there. I was like jumping through all these hoops to try to get it to not be not have the problems that I dislike. And my boyfriend Joe was like, you know, at a certain point, like you're trying to make the game be what it's not. Mm. <laughs> like it is a game that is meant to be won like this. And yeah, you can sort of do stuff in it, but it's it it, it is what it is. And it's structured the way it is for a reason. Um there are trending topics for a reason. Um, because that draws you in and you spend more time on the site and you see more ads and you contribute more data. So it's like, yeah. I, I get frustrated that I have to engage with things that feel genuine, whether that's like in the realm of like friendship or just, or learning from others, um, in what feels like a mall. Uh, like I would love it if we could be in a park instead of them all mm, yeah it's a good way of putting it you know I, as you were talking i was I, I think about this pretty often um you know brain configuration in, in relation to social media and you know i was in my 30s when the internet uh, really started taking off in my early 30s i was in grad school and I remember at the time thinking, this is pretty amazing. Because I was in grad school in San Francisco, but I wanted to be living in Spain, where I had been. I came back for grad school. And I very quickly realized, like, wait a minute. I could, like, be anywhere and send in papers and, you know, email with professors. And, you know, like, this could really revolutionize my little life. But I, I don't know that I thought about it in global sense. Um. But I often think about people who are being raised in this environment, who are, you know, engaging with social media from a very young age and how differently their brains must be organized. Um, because as you were talking, like trending topics makes trending topics go away. And I thought, I never look at trending topics. Like that's <laughs> zero. Yeah. I, I know it's there off to the right or the left or wherever it is, but I never look at it. Um, partly because I'm disengaged from a lot of the stuff that I guess, you know, like 
I'll see in the news so and so died, and I'm like, I have no idea who that person was, you know, or the whoever sang at the Super Bowl at halftime, never heard of him before that that singer, you know, um, and so it's nice being at a certain. I I don't know whether it's an age or it's generational, you know, if it's like pre social media or if it's over 50 you know what i mean i don't know if 50 year olds who were born in 1988 will be as disengaged as i am i don't know if i'm making sense <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean i mean i will say that um even within a, a sort of generational group there's i think there's a way bigger variety than is commonly thought i mean that's been my experience like I sometimes will have a student, you know, like I'll have an assignment because my class is about digital art. So there's a lot of internet stuff and I'll be like, oh, use your, you know, something social media account. And I'll have a student who's like, I don't, I just don't do social media. And I'm like, well, you know, um, and then, you know, their, their modes, even their modes of engaging with it are quite different among them, you know, as individuals, mm. like the kinds of things that they look at and the reasons that they look at things. Um, I've really like just been able to see that kind of firsthand. Um, and I guess I should also say like, I also never look at trending topics. It just bothers me that it's there. <laughs> it's more of like a, like I don't, because I didn't, it's like, I don't like the fact that I don't have the choice to make that go away yeah. within the interface. Right. Um, so like. I mean, this is kind of a silly comparison, but like I often <laughs> reference Craigslist as like a very different kind of website where you you are interacting with other people, right? Like you need a chair and you go to Craigslist and somebody has a chair and you meet up, you get the chair. At no point did you have to make an account. Craigslist is not emailing you about other chairs after that. Um, you don't get points. Right. You don't have to rate the chair. <laughs> like you just got the chair yeah. and... And it's like, and in that equation, it's sort of like the disappearing agent. Like it, it gave you what you needed and then it went away. And on top of that, it's an incredibly lightweight website, like mm. just in terms of how it looks. Um, and that's like not a, a small thing. Like there are places where data is really expensive. Um, and so like this idea of having like a just a <laughs> utilitarian, lightweight, like quiet relatively website that just does the one thing that you asked it to do um and it's such a contrast with like something like facebook where it's like i mean i my facebook account is basically dead but um you know every couple months or so when i like log in i'm like what <laughs> like what is even going on here yeah. like what, what what are all of these things um and like and usually what you wanted was like simple it's like i needed the I needed the URL for an event right. or like I needed to send a message. Um, and instead I'm getting all of this other stuff, you know, to say nothing of the whole, like, you know, the collecting of data and the ads and all that, but just simply on the level of like, I want technology to be a tool and I want to feel agency like with regard to that tool and be able to change it to be what I want it to be. Um, and, and that, you know, uh, I just had Claire Evans speak in my class yesterday. She wrote Broadband, uh, which is a book about uh, women who contributed to sort of the history of the internet and technology. Mm. And she was talking about... Um, Great title. That's funny. Yeah, right? That's really good. Um, 
She was talking about uh, uh, Echo, which was a BBS um, it, by, that was run by Stacey Horn, hmm. who kind of came from outside of the like you know techie community. And she was in New York, which you know everyone else was here. Um, but just even hearing her talk about that, like this, you know, this woman who just, you know, had this setup in her apartment and she, she had a very personal relationship to this thing that she designed. And when someone left the group, she would call them and ask them like if something had gone wrong, <laughs> you know, or like what she could do to help, um, just that kind of relationship, right. Versus like me going to Facebook, like I not only don't have any control over what's happening here. I don't even understand what's going on here. And I, and I have no, my only option is to go click through it in the way that's been set up for me to do so. Do you think, I mean, having looked at this sort of progression from a historical perspective, do you think it's sort of an inexorable slide into techno domination or is it a pendulum kind of thing like will i mean for example in media uh i don't know to what extent you're aware of substack you know which is sort of a return to a blog uh independent platform very minimalist um which in some ways could be seen as a reaction to the facebook's and the you know the sort of overly complicated um techno dominance and, and sort of giving control back to the user do you think it's it's a back and forth like that or do you think that those are waves on a tide that's moving in in one direction i honestly i don't know i kind of go back and forth myself on that um because it makes sense to me that the I don't know, like, I mean, even thinking about like movies, right? Like sometimes a, a movie will come out that is very nuanced and critical and sort of weird. And, and it's not the sort of like factory farmed movie. And it becomes incredibly popular because like I, that it, like people do want like good films at the end of the day, right? Like, um, uh, and so I think that and I you can also see like a similar kind of swing I would say in like human curation versus like algorithmic curation like people really seeking out like for example like a a specific like DJ or a specific person with playlists to it as opposed to their like discover weekly mm. or something um so I do think that there are these yeah like these sort of latent desires for like the things that are missing or harder to come by but at the same time, like, I don't underestimate the, the power of, you know, like just this really like widespread system that and it's like when something, when something begins to be taken for granted, like that's almost to me, like the point of no return hmm. because it's like you, then you can't point to it anymore. Hmm. It's like the person who's on Facebook who no longer realizes they're on Facebook. They're just in there. Like the, uh, Patricia Lockwood novel that just came out. Um, no one is talking about this. The main character who's extremely online, um, spends all her time on the portal, which is clearly Twitter, mm. but it's just called the portal in the, in the novel. And it's like, yeah, that's what it is. It's the portal. And then you're in the portal and you forgot that you ever even went in there. And you're not only, you're not thinking about the fact that you're on there or how long you've been on there. You're also like 
not thinking about the way everything is set up in the space that you're in. You're just kind of going through it and like, you know, so I think that's why I also really love, you know, in addition to artwork that like, you know, gives you some kind of like framing device, um, you know, art or writing that takes these taken for granted things and just renders them strange, like often with like a very subtle, you know, tweak or something like this, or just placing it outside of con its context, where then you can look at it and you're like, whoa, everything about that is weird. <laughs> like everything about, about that is weird. And like, I actually don't have to accept that if I don't want to, I might have to live with it, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can keep it present in your consciousness. I think about that sometimes when, when I'm in the van and, and driving uh, up in Idaho, Montana, Oregon, uh, up there. It, it's so beautiful. And, you know, you drive through these mountains and, it, you know, it, it it's beautiful if you don't know that those mountains used to be covered in forest. You know, if you don't have a historical perspective, you might, you know, if you're a kid or something and you're just like, wow, those mountains are beautiful and they are. But the beauty, your reaction is in some ways dependent upon your ignorance of, you know, that you're in the portal or the, the matrix or, you know, there's there's a great line uh this guy named gk chesterton who is like oscar wilde he's one of these people who's famous for saying all these really witty things um british guy visited new york city i think maybe in the 30s 20s or the 30s and uh his first time he'd been to new york and his guest took him to times square and showed him times square at night you know all the signs flashing lights and neon and everything and he stood there quietly for a long time everyone was getting nervous and finally someone said um so what do you think and he said uh i was just thinking how beautiful this would be if i couldn't read <laughs> so true <laughs> it's like yeah <laughs> that says it all yeah anyway listen yeah. jenny congratulations on the success of this book and and on the message which i think is so important have you ever done um have you ever floated in a sensory deprivation oh, tank you know it's funny i haven't and i i live sort of oddly close to one i um, i can probably Oakland. hook you up i'm sort of like a, a uh because i guess because of my connection to joe rogan who sort of brought the whole float thing back to life um because he <laughs> talked about it and uh, I gave like the keynote uh, address a few years ago at the F national float conference <laughs> or something. So, <laughs> so if if you're interested, let me see if I can hook you up with a few free floats. That would be amazing. Right. I'm I'm very I'm very into that, and I also it makes me wonder how time will feel. That's exactly what I wanted to to talk about because. In my experience, I mean, I've meditated for years. I've I've done different things, but to me, floating, uh, like when I try to meditate, I'm always distracted by bodily discomfort. You know, my knees hurt, my back hurts, whatever. Mm -hmm. Floating, it's just there's no incoming sensation. You're just suspended in space. It's amazing, 
And so it's yeah. really easy to go into that meditative state, you know, for me anyway, and time becomes really strange. Like it's really easy to lose track of time. And I, I you know, you're in a state where you're like, I don't know if I've been doing this for five minutes or an hour and a half. I have no idea. It's, it's really interesting. So yeah, yeah totally. we'll, uh, and in that time, like when like minutes don't exist, like they're meaningless. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Your body doesn't exist. It's it's like your whole narrative changes. It's really interesting. All right, Jenny Odell, thank you. People should go check out your website, which is what is it, JennyOdell.com? Yes, yeah. I was lucky enough to get my own name <laughs> as a domain. Yeah. Yeah, you're lucky your name's not Chris Ryan. That that was one of the first URLs <laughs> taken, I think. <laughs> nice. All right, thanks, Jenny. All right, you guys. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jenny O'Dell. You check her out at her website, Jenny O'Dell, O-D-E-L-L dot com. And uh, hey, if you want a float center in Oakland by any chance... Why don't you invite Jenny over and give her a few free floats? Floating is so awesome, but it's kind of expensive. And since she lives right there, I, I guess she she said she there's a float center right down the street from her place. And uh, yeah, so if you happen to be listening or you know someone in Oakland who has a float center, invite Jenny over. Uh, and also don't forget to go to trendswithbenefits.com and check out Kyle's new project there with the Mudwater folks, the beautiful, muddy Mudwater folks, Shane. Hey, Shane. Shane's a great dude. Uh, I really, Shane is so fucking talented and good looking and, uh, smart and I guess rich at this point. God damn it, Shane. Give some for, give some to other people. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode with Jenny O'Dell. And I uh, really appreciate all the support that you send to the podcast, whether it's through patreon.com or it's uh, at my website, tangentiallyspeaking.com. There are ways to join the so-called Chris Club, uh, which is second only to tweet in silly phrases and words. Um, but anyway, if you support the podcast through the website, I do a monthly video Roma thing where I answer any and all questions that people throw up there on the uh, subscriber forum. Uh, well, answer them. Let's say I entertain them. I discuss them. I address them. Uh, I'm not sure I answer them, but I at least respond to them. Um, and uh, you also get free downloads of all the ebooks, the tangentially uh, speaking or tangentially reading ebook, uh, and this one about drugs. And there's one that special uh, focuses on sexuality as well. So you have access to all that stuff, uh, all kinds of goodies. And uh, if you can't afford it, don't sweat it. Other ways you can support the podcast, just tell people about it. You can leave a review on the iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Um, any of that stuff is great. So thank you for all that. I'm going to play you out, as always, with my mom. <laughs> Somebody on the Reddit thing was like, I want a T-shirt that says, like, our 
garage slash cottage is full of t-shirts <laughs> people are like uh teeing off on my mom anyway this is mom talking about her little cottage business uh and then uh the great carsey blanton playing you out with smoke alarm thanks everybody talk to you soon okay mom uh tell people what they can order from the garage okay in our cottage garage we have Lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. to the ground.